We'll hear argument next to number 96318, Daryl Richardson and John Walker versus McKnight. you may proceed whenever you want to. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The issue in this case is whether correctional officers who are employed by a private concern who perform traditional and historical police power functions and act under the color of law for 1983 purposes should have the benefit of qualified immunity. Firstly, we would like to put forth the proposition that should this Court extend qualified immunity to correctional officers of this nature, that the floodgates will not open, and qualified immunity will not be uh, willy-nilly conferred. Uh, firstly, there are thousands, literally maybe hundreds of thousands of contractors who con contract with the state of Tennessee, but only those who are found to act under the color of state law, as defined by this course jurisprudence in Jackson versus Metropolitan Edison, would be uh, needful of qualified immunity. Secondly. Only objectively reasonable actions on the part of these private actors would give rise to qualified immunity. Of course, if their actions are not objectively reasonable under this court's jurisprudence, they would not have benefit of qualified immunity. Mr. Ray, would you um, put together the theory and the fact for me, because just looking at what's alleged here, um, what would, how would it not be clearly established that um, it's, it's a violation to take someone who is over 300 pounds and put them in these tight restraints uh, that are bound to cause extreme pain. I mean, so we're talking about qualified immunity, and would a reasonable um, officer understand from the clearly established law that you don't do this? That's my problem with this case. Justice Ginsburg, we never got to that point, and that's the issue. But what would be the defense? What would be the defense to these allegations? Well, perhaps under Woods versus Strickland, if Mr. McKnight can establish that the acts of our officers that he alleges uh, were not objectively reasonable, then we don't have benefit of qualified immunity. That's obvious. But the district court... Maybe it's an academic question. Oh, the question is not academic in that there are literally hundreds of vexatious and frivolous lawsuits filed... Oh, but I'm talking about in the context of this case. In the context of this case, Mr. McKnight may well establish if this court should extend qualified immunity to correctional officers who are employed by private concerns that our two officers don't have the benefit. The Sixth Circuit decided this case on the basis that qualified immunity wasn't available to private contractors. That's correct, Mr. Chief Justice. So that's why we've got it here. That's why it's here. Duncan v. Peck, which is their case, 
And there now, I, but the question I ask is, what good would qualified immunity do them if they had it? Well, in cases on down the road where their actions were objectively reasonable, but, the litigation... on down the road. In this case, I mean, we do have to have a live case or real case or controversy. Well, so if you prevail, what good would that do to these parties? I would submit, Justice Ginsburg, that this case will still have to be remanded to the district court for that specific finding that their actions were not objectively reasonable and they don't have the benefit of qualified immunity. But you make the argument for them when you're saying, now I have the benefit of this qualified immunity defense. So, district court, they, they are qualified immune. And so the district court will tell me what wasn't clearly established in relation to these facts. Well, the specific issue before this court is we didn't get to that point. The district court said, based on the jurisprudence of Manus versus Corrections Corporation of America established by this court, you don't have qualified immunity, Mr. Ray. You're out of here. That's what the Sixth Circuit yes, said. Yes, but I'd just like you to tell me, suppose he had qualified immunity. What could he do with it? Through objectively reasonable. That's correct, Mr. Chief Justice. And, again, we may fail on that issue, Justice Ginsburg, but the issue before this court and what we want decided is the fact that qualified immunity should be extended to these individuals who act under the color of state law for 1983 purposes are subjected to suit on a day-by-day basis, and they perform traditional and historical police powers that this court has extended qualified immunity to their public counterparts and Navarrette. So we would submit that though we may ultimately not prevail on that question, that question is not before us here. The question is whether we get over the first hurdle. The Sixth Circuit suggested that there might be another standard short of qualified immunity said maybe good faith. The good faith defense, that's correct. But the good faith defense, as you well know, Justice Ginsburg, still allows us to be subjected to the discovery process, to discover the subjective mindset of my clients. We go through what may be needless and extended litigation, extensive litigation, whereas if qualified immunity applies, of course, that ends the dispute at that point. So I would submit that the difference between a good faith defense and qualified immunity is quite different, and the benefits that would be conferred not on my two petitioners, but on the citizens of the state of Tennessee who would not have to bear the burden of litigating what may turn out to be a frivolous and vexatious lawsuit, which again, this court's jurisprudence from Harlow Ford has made it a consideration that the benefits you want to confer is not on the actors, but upon the citizens who will benefit from not having their officers who perform a traditional governmental function that utilizes a great deal of discretion from being impeded, deterred, made timid by threat of litigation, and threatened with litigation. So we would submit that the question here again is whether you confer qualified immunity on officers who historically have and do provide a fundamental governmental function. Mr. Ray, they do historically provide what was historically a governmental function, but have they historically had such immunity? I mean, we said in our earlier cases that this qualified immunity is a matter, it's not in the statute, but we say it came along with the history of the statute. That was simply what existed when this statute was passed, and therefore we think it exists today. Now, have you given us any evidence 
uh, that a private individual not employed by the state has ever been given uh, uh, immunity. Justice Scalia, if I could address prison guards historically in the state of Tennessee. Anybody historically, even if you could come up with a, you know, a, a medical officer who was privately contracted for, who somehow was given immunity, or a private policeman, I, anything. I, I don't know that you've, you've shown even one example of, uh, of, of this uh, historical exception. I would submit that historically, uh, the Attorney General of the United States at one time was allowed to have a private law practice. And when acting in his official function for the, for the government, that I was sure that, that, that immunity would attach to him in any official acts. Uh, in England, prior to 1871, when, when this particular statute was, was uh, promulgated, uh, lawyers were both public prosecutors and private prosecutors, and when they were acting as public prosecutors, I would submit that immunity attached to them. Those are the only examples I can suggest. But let me state that That's a good one. Pearson versus Ray, this court started out talking about a good faith immunity, which ultimately developed over the course of this court's jurisprudence to the qualified immunity doctrine. Pearson versus Ray dealt with police officers having a good faith of, uh, defense to malicious prosecution actions. In Tennessee, pursuant to statute TCA 4-3609, correctional officers have the same core functions, the, the same grant of power as police officers do. They have the right to bear arms, they have the right to take people into custody, effectuate search and seizures, secure their facility from both uh, outside invaders or quell disturbances inside. So I would submit that Pearson versus Ray, I think it was footnote 7 where Mr. Justice White cited ample precedent that there was a historical basis for police officers having, uh, excuse me, that was never at footnote 7, that correctional officers have uh, qualified immunity. And given the historical basis in Tennessee of there being uh, coextensive powers between police officers and correctional officers, I would submit that the historical basis is there. What, what about ordinary tort law? That is, a, a policeman or a correctional officer working for the government uh, put shackles on somebody or, or hits them or whatever. That's a tort. It's a battery. And there must be, if they're uh, 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 state officials, some kind of state law tort immunity uh, that gives a degree of leeway to a state officer who commits the battery where he does it in good faith. Is there any case anywhere in any of these jurisdictions that tells us in respect to ordinary tort law, whether a private correction or official is treated similarly? The, if I may answer this way, Justice Breyer, the public correction officer uh, sovereign immunity would, would suffice there. It's not a suit individually against the officer. You but see you the officer the court claims. There will be some kind of, of uh, uh, public-based, uh, uh, not immunity, but it'll be a defense, and for good faith, etc. And I just wonder if there's any case that you've come across, it seems to me by now it should have come across somewhere, ordinary garden variety tort law. The answer but to that is no. The answer, is what's, the answer to what's no? The answer is no. Case, no I case? found no case, but I would submit that our private correctional officers do not have the benefit of sovereign immunity and therefore would be subject to tort law and subject to being sued in state jurisdictions. And without a defense, so that if in fact he commits a battery by putting the shackle on, it is a defense to say I was acting according to law, period. But if it turns out he was wrong, that in fact there are too many shackles, it's a battery. And he must pay the piper. 
And no, and no qualified immunity defense under state law, you say? Not for the private person, but for the public. No, not for the private person. No, and no good faith defense? Oh, the good faith defense would be there, Your Honor. No, but, but, but for the public person, yes. The question is whether for the private person, if it's not available to you and me in our private capacities when we happen to go out as a joke and put shackles on somebody, not much of a joke. But the, do, do, do you see what I'm driving at? I see what you're driving at, Justice Breyer, and I still believe that as you stated the question, the good faith defense would be available to that private correctional officer, but not in the context of having any sort of immunity. It would just be a common law defense to, I acted in good, just as if a private security guard at Walmart took someone into custody thinking they were a shoplifter, and they turned out not to be a shoplifter then they're subject to malicious prosecution. If I, I don't know if you want to comment on this, but where I'm having trouble with this case and why I find it difficult is because there are three interrelated things. A, to what extent does the 1983 apply in the first place when the person is private? B, to what extent is there ordinary tort law immunity, same or different from a private person? And three, how does we fit into those answers this question here about whether there's an immunity? I'll try That's to, too general and vague for you. I'll to, try to address it. That's what's best Number one, it's without question that we act under the color of state law and are amenable to sue under 42 U.S. Section 1983 because we do perform those core governmental functions that historically and traditionally have been the police powers of the state. So I think it's not questioned by anyone, at least not by us, that we are amenable to sue under 1983. Now then, the second question becomes, what common law immunity do we have as a private person? I would submit that by contract, the state of Tennessee uh, denied us sovereign immunity, so we're in a different position than our public counterparts who are correctional officers. Uh, well, you just say that uh, liability under Section 1983 ought to go hand in hand with with a qualified immunity uh, defense. Just so, Connor, I, I think that that would be the commonsensical approach, and I recognize that that Wyatt v. Cole was uh, out there. I think on the the cutting edge of of 1983 jurisprudence in that the court found that there was a uh, color of law uh, and, and amenable to suit because they utilized the replevin and garnishment statute and went on to find that because they were two cattle barons in a, in a if you will, spite suit, that qualified immunity didn't attach. And I don't disagree with well, that. Well, it has some relevance, though, here. And the question is, are we just going to apply that notion in this context? I would submit, Justice O'Connor, that where a private actor is acting under the color law amenable to suit in 1983, coupled with the fact that they are performing a core governmental function that traditionally and historically has been part of the police power of the state, that the reasonable approach would be to grant them qualified immunity. Why isn't it reasonable to say, look, uh, this is an extraordinary exception, that you hurt somebody and you're not liable, you have this qualified immunity. We want to limit it to those functions that are really core government functions. And it doesn't seem to us that regardless of whether it used to be a core government function, the government isn't that serious about the function if it's willing to farm it out. Why, just as a, as a means of keeping the governments honest, don't we say, if you're really serious that this is core government functions, you want this qualified immunity, you have to have your own people doing it. You can't farm it out to private individuals. If you're that concerned about it, you'd exercise master-servant uh, 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 supervision over what's going on. This state hasn't, 
So the state doesn't care that much, so why should we give qualified immunity? Just clear. I beg your difference. The state cares a great deal. The state has on site a, a, a functionaire designated as a liaison who oversees on a day-to-day basis how we run South Central Correctional Facility. Yeah, but I don't want to have to look into this on a case-by-case basis. I mean, we're talking about a general rule of law, and why shouldn't the general rule of law be, look at if you're, if you're as much in control of it that it's your own servants who are doing the thing, then we'll consider we'll consider qualified immunity. But if, if, you're, if you're insouciant enough to, to farm it out, whatever controls you put, we're not going to give qualified immunity. Just clear, I submit that the jurisprudence of this court has always been that the states are free uh, as, as the hot houses of democracy, uh, the laboratories of democracy, if you will, to attempt to chart their own course and how they delegate the duties, how they go about doing what they want to do. If the state of Tennessee thinks it's better serves its citizens to contract out the running of the prisons, then that is an issue that's left for the state of Tennessee. Now, whether this court wants to decide an immunity question on that basis, I would submit that uh, that's clearly antithetical to what this court's done in the past. Uh, that's like the uh, Amical arguing that you should consider whether or not insurance comes into play or whether we choose to indemnify our employees or whether... Uh, we uh, uh, choose to do to give uh, bonuses, etc. All of these things are things that the state of Tennessee has taken into account when they initially decide that we're going to contract out at least part of our corrections facilities and compare whether a private-run facility can operate more efficiently uh, to be the, to the taxpayers' interest or whether we should keep this governmental function our own. And I submit that once the state makes that decision, that's a valid and legitimate decision the state has the right to make. And, and you would extend that to all um, contracting out to do uh, a custodial job, say you'd apply the same thing to daycare centers, that all, all, all the uh, employees of the contracting, of the government contractor would have qualified immunity? No, Justice Ginsburg, I believe that it should be maintained within the confines of this existing, of this court's existing jurisprudence. Since Procunier versus Navarrete's been decided that uh, state prison guards and then Clevenger v. Saxon are federal prison guards are, uh, have the right to have the qualified immunity doctrine applied in their favor, I would submit that it's core governmental functions of that nature. How about education? And, and uh, the government saying our own schools are rotten, so we're going to contract out that function to a private company that's going to do it for money. Again, I think that that would be a legitimate end of state government to do that. But, but were those uh, uh, the employees, the teachers? And the I would say no, because this court has never extended qualified immunity to uh, educational facilities. In fact, uh, uh, I think there's one case dealing with a contractor who provided educational service to the prison that attempted to invoke qualified immunity doctrine, which was rejected by this court. But again, Strickland was school, a school board, wasn't it? That's correct, Your Honor, school board. But again, that was a question of the discretion that the school board exercises in fulfilling its function. And Are private schools liable under 1983? Mr. Justice I would think that the, the acting under color of law uh, coefficient would be missing from, from that particular 
But I wasn't talking about a private school. I was talking about uh, it's a it's a the state has been running these daycare centers and they haven't worked out very well. So the state decides it, not parents paying tuition to a private school, but the state is going to replace its own operation with a, a, a contracting out arrangement. Well, again, I think it would be dependent upon the amount of discretion that the officers utilize in furthering the public good and what this court's jurisprudence had been in the past about conveying qualified immunity to actors of that nature. And it would be my belief that uh, in the example you've given, Justice Ginsburg, that qualified immunity would not attach to that particular function. But here we have a function that on a day-to-day basis, I can't think of any other governmental function that utilizes as much discretion in dealing with uh, a, a populace or a segment of the population that this court has recognized where there's an unremitting tension between the keepers and the kept and an unremitting t- uh, tension between uh, those folks that are being confined for antisocial behavior who have a proclivity to make use of the court system uh, in some cases for frivolous and vexatious litigation and that it's the public good that is to be served by qualified immunity. It's not Mr. Richardson or Mr. Walker that the benefit is meant to be conferred upon. It's the belief by this court that Mr. Richardson and Mr. Walker should have the right to carry out this governmental function with discretion, without timidity, uh, take care of business, free from uh, vexatious and frivolous litigation. Of course, is why I'm interested in this uh, private part, because pure tort law, if it does apply to this private person, like any other private person, would make this all meaningless, what you're saying, because the person would have a cause of action, the injured person, under state tort law. And it really wouldn't matter unto all these incentives and and which way the contract cuts and so forth would all be uh, totally irrelevant, really, because it wouldn't matter. Justice Breyer, all I can answer that is is a practical, uh, practical what happens in the real life out there. These writ writers all go to federal court under 1983, for whatever reason. The state court's there for them. Uh, well, probably for attorney's fees, don't you suppose? Uh, well, we're arguing about attorney's fees here. <laughs> I think not, Justice Breyer. Well, Mr. Ray, I assume that, that if that's a problem for the private contractor uh, officer, I, I suppose it's also a problem for the state-employed officer. He can be sued under state tort law, can't he? That's correct. Does he have qualified immunity under state tort law? I don't know. If I could answer that question. If he does, your argument would be the state should make the same, the same extension to contractors uh, that you're asking the federal government to under 1983. Well, for whatever reason, they chose not to. Uh, but the state has, has chosen not to. Well, they've chosen not to grant a sovereign immunity, which their public correctional officers would have benefit of. What that means is you have no, no, your, no. your suit is brought... You cannot bring an individual suit against a correctional officer who, who has beaten you up, uh, just a tort suit? I'm not suing the state. I'm suing this individual. I'm saying, you know, this is, a, this is a bad guy who's hurt me. It would be my belief you would have to go through the court claims. He'd have so to... you're not trying to impose liability on the state. You're just trying to sue the individual? Again, Mr. Chief Justice... Normally sue, you normally sue. I think most say you sue a tort for tort, but there is an immunity that attaches to actions of a government official under ordinary tort law. The exact scope of it, I couldn't tell you, but that's where qualified immunity comes from. It's a transplant from that a basic tort law principle. At least that was my understanding. That's correct, Mr. Spire. And, and as elucidated by this court in, in Pearson v. Ray, 
the analogy to uh, the good faith defense that a police officer would have had at common law to such a claim. If I could reserve the rest of my time if there's no other questions. Very well, Mr. Ray. Mr. Blanick, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this is a damage action brought pursuant to Section 1983, and that provision broadly imposes liability on any and every person who, acting under the color of state law, deprives a person of constitutional rights. It contains no explicit immunities or exceptions. <clears throat> and nonetheless, this Court has recognized that when Congress enacted the Civil Rights Act back in 1871, it did not intend to abrogate wholesale the immunities that existed at that time. Rather, this Court has said, and it has said it as recently as Wyatt versus Cole, that it will recognize immunities where, but only where, two conditions are met. First, that there is some firm historical antecedent for the immunity, and second, that there are strong policy considerations consistent with the purpose of Section 1983 that preserve the preservation of the immunity, and both conditions need be met. Isn't it also true that we've often said that the scope of the immunity is measured by the function being performed by the defendant in the office he held, and the function being performed by these private companies is precisely the same as a public function? Yes, though the Court has, even in cases that post-date Harlow, always looked at the historical basis. Yes, the only history is that this function is one that's been entitled to has generated immunity. Uh, that is correct, Your Honor. But this function performed by state officials subject to the constraints that normally apply to state actors. And Mr. Blatick, can you say for sure that, uh, uh, that uh, immunity was never extended to uh, uh, non-employees of the state? I mean, the example uh, uh, brought forward by Mr. Ray uh, is an impressive one. That is, it certainly was the tradition at common law, and it still is the practice in England to have prosecutions conducted by barristers hired by the, by the, by the Crown. I expect that was the case in the early days in, in, in this country. Did those, did those private prosecutors not have any Im immunity? The only case of this court that addresses that issue is Tower versus Glover, which involved not a prosecutor but a public defendant. And this court, relying both on history and public policy grounds, held that that person was not entitled to the immunity that was sought in that case. So if we have a lay magistrate system in this country, the judges will lose their immunity, too. Well, Your Honor, judicial immunity is a different branch of sovereign immunity than the immunity that we're speaking of here today. And, and that gets back to my fundamental point, which is there is no historical antecedent for immunity at common law for non-governmental actors, particularly in torts involving the abuse of government power. You say for sure that, uh, you, you know for sure that, well, uh, that prosecutors uh, at common law, private barristers who, who prosecuted on behalf of the Crown had no immunity. I, I do not know that for sure. I don't I, either, but I would be surprised if they didn't. Well, Your Honor, the only discussion of that issue I've seen in this Court's cases is in Tower versus Glover. In fact, even in England, isn't it true that the hue and cry that was raised to, to chase the fleeing felon often enlisted the help of all sorts of private citizens in performing police functions and apprehending fleeing felons? I think that is very different. I do not know whether those parties have immunity. The only, the only historical evidence we have here is in the brief of the ACLU, which looks at the, the practice that existed in the turn of the century for privatized prisons. Private prisons were common in the late 1800s. 
And there are cases from that time involving private jailers who in, uh, engaged in tortious conduct, and they are not afforded immunity. This is, you're not talking about 1983 cases, I take it, but just tort, state tort law cases? Your Honor, some are, are state tort law cases. Other are, other are federal cases brought in federal court. The, 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 the reported decisions do not state the basis for federal jurisdiction. So I do not, I can't tell you for a fact that these were 1983 cases. Could have been diversity? I, I suppose so, Your Honor. Well, was there any question about whether, in any of those cases, about, I mean, weren't they the most outrageous uh, violations of, uh, of law, that there wouldn't be any question of whether the law was clear or not? On, on well, I, I, I mean, if, you know, if the, if, the, if the immunity question wasn't even involved in the case, they're not very good authority. Everybody agrees you can sue these people, you know, so the well, existence of suits doesn't prove anything. No, the question that this court has looked to in every single case involving the question of whether an, uh, an individual is entitled to immunity has looked first at the question of is there historical antecedent. And the burden on showing a historical antecedent has always been placed on the proponents of the immunity. This court has ruled again and again that because immunities interfere with the enforcement of constitutional rights, the burden is on the proponent to explain both a historical basis and public policy uh, arguments that support it. The petitioners have never argued that there's a historical antecedent. The, the courts that have looked at sure they have. Their, 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 their historical antecedent is, their, their argument goes like this, what counts is the function. There is plenty of historical antecedent for this a person performing this function to be given immunity. It's, it's plenty. And your response is, well, it's performing the same function, but he wasn't employed by the state. And, and I, it seems to me that's a good rebuttal argument, but I, I don't think you can say that they haven't brought for, forward any historical antecedent. Well, it is true that in common law, government prison guards had immunity, or had a defense that, that is now called an immunity. Uh, but there were there were there was quite an extensive experience with private prisons, and there is no evidence that any of those actors were ever accorded immunity either uh, uh, in in our in our, um, in our jurisprudence or in the English jurisprudence. And to the extent that people have looked at it, the cases that exist, and I, I agree, they're not they're not perfect on this, but do not accord private actors immunity. But in any event. The policy considerations that I think are germane here argue very strongly against giving governmental immunity to private actors. Uh, our, our main reason is this. Placing governmental power in the hands of private actors is bound to increase the risk of constitutional torts. And I say that because the, the key constraints, qualified immunity is a trade-off. On one hand, we accept the fact that there will be unremitied and undeterred violations of law because we find it necessary for government to perform those functions. It is altogether a different matter when we are transforming government power to private actors who may operate in very different ways with very different incentives. For example, here, the prison is being run by a for-profit corporation. Corporates Corporations, including prison corporations, have a duty to maximize their profits. But don't they also have a very strong motive to, uh, to avoid paying a lot of damages? Well, they have a motive to avoid paying damages if there's something in place to keep that motivation present. The, the problem with qualified immunity is it removes the deterrence to do precisely that, Your Honor. 
Why, why, why is it I don't see any difference? I know you've made a big point of this in your brief, but I don't really see it. Why doesn't a, a corporation wants to save money? So the government doesn't give a damn. They always blame somebody else. But boy, when money's at stake, they get busy. Well, the easiest and, way to... And therefore, uh, they, they will really hew the line. They, 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 will, they don't want these judgments. And, and therefore, whatever reason we have for, uh, for uh, uh, giving qualified immunity to uh, uh, private, uh, to public officials, we'll just apply the same there. I mean, why does the fact that they make money mean they're more likely to violate people's rights? You could as easily argue it's less likely. It, be, it, is be, it is for two reasons. I'm not saying it is less likely. I just don't well, think it's more. My, my first answer, Justice Breyer, is if we don't know the answer to that question, yeah. then the decision should be made by Congress, not this court, because unless it is clear that the risks of conferring qualified immunity are not substantial, will not do violence to the policies of 1983, this court has always said we ought not to proceed. Okay, why doesn't it, look, the, suppose I'm inventing a system, which I won't do, but you might have no qualified immunity for anybody, and just have an insurance policy, which would put terrifically accurate incentives on public officials. But that isn't our system, we have qualified immunity. So if our system is qualified immunity, it must be because we want the people performing this function to feel not totally worried that they're right at the line. If that's the reason, why doesn't that reason apply here with equal force? Because the court has said, in cases like Harlow, mm -hmm. that in addition to whatever economic incentives that you're, that you're basing your question on, there are other constraints that operate on public officials that certainly are absent here. Like what? In Harlow, of course, excuse me, in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, uh, the court was talking about political accountability. And those constraints operate on public employees in a very real and very immediate way. So that's the problem. So Do you think that the money is less of a restraint or more? I think money is a restraint. And <coughs> what kind of public accountability do state-paid prison guards have? Well, they, are, they, they work in a very hierarchical civil service system. They give oaths of office. They are subject to... There's, there are intimations in your brief that they public employees kind of do it as a labor of love, and that may be true at some levels, but certainly not at the prison guard level. No, you're, 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 I agree with that, but, but our point is not solely that the motivations of prison guards, here of course they're not simply prison guards, they're shareholders of the co corporation for which they work, it's not simply their motivation, it's their work within a structure. It is the nature of the employer that is significant. And if, the, if the head of the operation were a, a state official, let's take a volunteer fire department where the fire chief is a public employee, everybody else is a private citizen, uh, what then? I still think, I, I think there's a continuum along which greater state control may be, may be an element, but as long as there's a divide, divided loyalty problem, like you have here, where the correctional officers serve two masters, not one, and so the shareholders as well as the state, you have problems of constitutional violation. Well, but why, why doesn't the, the impetus for what you call public accountability work exactly the same way in this case uh, with the accountability of, of a contractor to the person who may or may not renew the contract? Uh, if, there's, uh, if, if there's a lot of trouble, the next time around, I suppose the state is going to say, gee, we ought to find somebody who, who doesn't seem to create so much trouble for us. Why isn't that just as much uh, and perhaps more of an impetus than what you call political accountability? There is supervision, biannual supervision, by the, certain of the committees of the Tennessee legislature. That, of course, is much more sporadic than the kind of public oversight 
that, that ordinarily obtains with, with public entities. But when, the, when this legislation was passed, the one principal reservation was made by the Attorney General of Tennessee who said, and uh, this is obviously a paraphrase, but our, our concern is that suppose something goes wrong with this contract. It is very difficult to substitute a new provider, if you will, uh, on the spur of the moment. And so in some sense we are locked in and we are stuck with the contractor that we... That well, we're, we're stuck with the contract for the contract period, but all contracts are going to be renewed. That is correct. And there is some oversight, but that is very different than the day-to-day -day public accountability that we presume constrains the activities of our public officials. That was, that was part of the... Well, I take it the Solicitor General doesn't quite take your approach here because, as I read the brief, would advocate that um, qualified immunity be recognized for some private contractors. I think that is correct, Justice O'Connor, but I, to the extent that a clear line can be discerned in the government's brief, I think they point to the same two factors that we do. One is the lack of divided loyalty. In all of the hypotheticals that are given in the Solicitor General's brief, the, the contractor owes its or his or her loyalty to the government. And the second portion of their test, as I understand it, is direct and active governmental supervision. Neither of those factors are present here. This is a classic turnkey operation in which the state has essentially given over to CCA, the Congressional Corporations of America, the responsibility for the day-to-day -day operations of this prison. Does your argument then across the board depend on the proposition that making money for shareholders or losing money or the threat of losing money is a less powerful motivating factor to keep people behaving properly than responsibility to voters or general considerations of patriotism? I, I sort of wish you were right, but I'm not certain well, that's correct. Your Honor, in part I'm relying on what this Court has said in its prior immunity cases. These are not my own Views. If I, but uh, is, that, is that a necessary proposition? That is, if I, if I don't think that, then would I have to decide the other way? Well, I think if you look at the economic incentives, the provision of qualified immunity is the wrong way to go about enforcing compliance with the civil rights laws. Uh, it, 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 if you're simply looking at it as dollars and cents, qualified immunity will save the Correction Corporation of America, assuming that it indemnifies its employees and pays for the litigation expenses, an enormous amount of money and removes the incentives. Well, it still costs money to come all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court and fight some issue on qualified immunity. Uh, this doesn't come cheaply. You have to have lawyers go in, assert it, get it. It's expensive, and it is in the economic interest of the private contractor to avoid even that. They will make more money if they aren't dragged into court at all. So they have every economic incentive to behave in ways that will keep them out of court, period, don't they? Well, that, that may be so, Justice O'Connor. But if, if that is the case, then this, their plea is misdirected. They ought to go to Congress and make that argument where Congress can engage in the kind of fact determinations that this court has said in the past... Well, I don't know. It goes uh, to me, uh, to the balance that you weigh here, uh, what our concerns are. I think they do have an economic incentive to behave in ways that won't get them even as far as a qualified immunity issue. Let's take this case, for example. Yeah. Here, when the prisoner was transported to South Central Correctional Facility, the original transportation was done by state correctional officers. They recognized the cost of his bulk and because of his size, they ought to take the ankle shackles 
and put him on his wrist, leaving his ankles unshackled. And when the, the transfer was made, the state correctional officers told the CCA employees that this is the way he ought to be, be handled. The CCA employees ignored that and shackled both his wrists and his legs, leading to, uh, leading to his injuries. And you think that's because they were private employees? No. Not I, because I, they were stupid or mean or anything it, else. It, it could have been all... something inherent in the nature of private employees that would have made them the stupid ones rather than the... Uh, I, I don't see that. I, I didn't finish you, okay. Justice Scalia. Let me, try to, let me try to respond directly to your question. The transportation of prisoners is done as a flat fee. You, the better you do it, the more personnel you do it, you're not going to make any more money. And the, the problem that this case presents is there is inevitably a tension. When it comes to spending money or safeguarding prisoners' rights, there is inevitably a tension here. And here I simply think that these... these, these Employees uh, have the, uh, I mean, they're wonderful employees if, if they have the financial uh, well-being of the corporation so much in mind that they know that by whipping this prisoner along a little bit faster, the corporation is going to make more money and that makes them feel good. I can't imagine that that's in their mind at all. I don't, I don't divorce the employees from the context in which they work. And here what I'm saying is that because corporations have a duty to their shareholders to maximize their profits, that puts the needs of the corporation... On, potentially on a collision course with the constitutional rights of their employees. And that is the danger of giving qualified immunity to, to private actors who are not set sure. you know, Just from my own experience in private practice, private concerns are much more cost-conscious and willing to settle and willing to avoid liability than governments, which traditionally feel, as, as I, I've gathered away, that you know, we don't need to worry about how much this is costing us because we've got a principle at stake. Uh, I, I, I think your, your argument really proves the other thing. Well, Your Honor, all I can say is that the, the princi one of the principal goals of Section 1983 is to deter civil rights violations. That's why, part of the reason why it was enacted. And it seems to me that if you put governmental power in the hands of private actors who are not subject to the constraints that we normally think uh, inhibit unconstitutional acts by government officials, uh, that is a very risky proposition that counsels against extending qualified immunity uh, to private persons here. I disagree with the, with the Solicitor General on the, how you treat the doctors who have a contract to attend to all the inmates who get sick. I do not know whether there's any common law basis for affording those kinds of contractors who work within the governmental structure as it exists, who take supervision and direction and control from, from governmental prison officials, whether they have been accorded immunity in the past. But I, I would urge the court to retain the historic uh, first question that is always asked in qualified immunity cases, which thank, is simply, Thank you, Mr. Thank you. Uh Mr. Nader, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. It is the position of the United States that guards employed by a private corporation that is operating a prison pursuant to, con to a contract with the state for the operation of that prison are not entitled to invoke qualified immunity under Section 1983 solely by virtue of the fact that they are performing functions that are similar to those performed by a publicly employed guard. However, as we explain in our brief, there are other circumstances not present in this case in which we do believe that private persons should be entitled to invoke immunity. Some of those have been referred to here, and some of them, in fact, have distinct common law antecedents. 
there, there are, there are, there's a common law recognition, for example, for uh, private judicial activities in the area of arbitration. There are uh, common law uh, antecedents for private citizens uh, helping to uh, find uh, to, to capture fleeing felons. Uh, there are common law antecedents uh, for immunities for informants and other volunteers, such as volunteer fire companies. Where, the, where in situations where the government cannot get the assistance of private persons uh, in the performance of public functions, the law has long recognized immunities or, or defenses. Uh, and we think in those circumstances that correspondingly under 1983 or, or Bivens, when a person is, is acting under color of law, that there would be a, also a basis for doing that. Do we know that that isn't one of those situations? That is to say, do we know that private companies, deep pockets apparently, uh, if, uh, who do not have the sovereign immunity that the state has and who are liable uh, you know, uh, for, for uh, vicarious master-servant liability for their, uh, for their individual uh, uh, functionaries, uh, is it clear that they would take, the, take on these contracts and perform that governmental function if indeed they didn't have comparable qualified immunity to the one that the government's own uh, prison guards uh, I think there are really two questions, and that is whether the, whether the private corporation could hi- would be able to attract uh, employees to serve as their guards, but then beyond that the question would be whether the state could accomplish the function of, of housing prisoners if that weren't so, and we know, we know from history that the states have operated prisons themselves and have been able to uh, hire employees and uh, attract employees and give them the security of their job. In fact, that's one of the, one of the functions of qualified immunity in the public sector. Is if doing that's it. true, uh, then uh, you're not going to know the answer to this either, I bet, because I bet there is no answer, but try it. But, uh, look, the, uh, my impression of the qualified immunity thing is it's a creation by this court interpreting a statute that rests upon common law, tort law and the kinds of immunity that under common law tort law went with public officials. So if we're going back to history, I would be quite interested as to how the states, again, have applied their common law tort law to people who suddenly privatize, take over state functions. If, for example, they were to say, no, there is no immunity. You're treated just like Joe Blokes out in the street. That would support your historical argument very much because then they would have evolved tort law the same way. And the opposite would be the opposite. And you're going to tell me you don't know because probably it hasn't come up yet. No, my, my understanding is that that, 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 is, that that distinction does exist in, 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 in tort law. Right, so what happens? But for, for government officials, and this is really, this is really the, the issue in, in this court's decision in Westfall, which dealt with the, with the qualified immunity of federal employees from state, state common law torts, the court there referred to the fact that at, that at common law, uh, employees were were uh, absolutely immune, essentially, for acts performed within the scope of their uh, discretion. And the restatement of torts refers to that same immunity for public officials acting within the scope of their discretion. There is no comparable immunity no, as such. Now, what happened? For, when? for private, exactly what? For, for, for private for private persons. Now, I, uh, I, I'm not aware of any law dealing specifically with contracting out, but I but I, I see no reason why contracts awarded to a private corporation for for service contracts in this case, or procurement contracts, uh, either way, I see no reason why a private corporation in its ordinary functions, whether it's performing a contract for another private person or the government, would not be subject to the, in, as a general rule, the same rule that there would not be a comparable immunity. Now, there may be defenses at, at common law, uh, and, and for example, uh, I, uh, there, are, there are privileges or defenses, these things have different labels at common law, for, uh, uh, and I'm sure the guards here would have, would have a defense, even a private person would, in a assisting in an arrest, and, 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 and I'm sure that there would be a good faith 
defense recognized at common law in Tennessee, not an immunity, but a defense in terms of the, of the force that was reasonably be, uh, uh, believed to be necessary by a, a guard to restrain someone. That would be a privileged battery, and the question would be whether the, whether the, whether the battery would be, would be, was, was reasonable. But, Mr. Needler, you've, you've confused me now. I thought when, when you began, you acknowledged that there were some instances in which qualified immunity was, was given to, to private people, where you said it was necessary to call forth the services. Right. But, and now you're just, I thought you're just saying now that, that there aren't any instances. No, no, I, I was explaining the general, the general common law rule of, of torts that, that the absolute immunity for government actors oh. uh, did not apply in, in, in the private sector. But even under the common law, there well, was... qualified immunity here, though. We're not talking about absolute immunity. Right, no, but, I, but I'm, I'm, I'm just, I, I think that there, that there is some parallel, uh, as Justice Breyer was suggesting, uh, to support, in the tort law to support a distinction between people who are public employees and people who are employees of private corporations. But even under contracts, I do want to make one important point. If a person operating under a contract is, is uh, acting pursuant to a specific governmental directive, either in the contract that something shall be done in a certain way, or a directive in a particular case that something shall be done in a certain way, we believe that qualified immunity should attach to that, because in that situation it is not the private actor, but the government that is really accountable for that, and the government uh, agent or official who made that decision has, has been responsible for balancing the costs and benefits of doing that. Uh, I do think that there is an important distinction, both as a matter of history, constitutional law, and common sense, between government and private corporations, between the government way of doing things or the government model and the private market uh, model. For one thing, Article 6 of the Constitution requires every executive officer of a state of the state or the federal government to take an oath to support the Constitution. And those heads of the executive departments, including the state correctional department, have direct responsibility and political accountability for those who work for them. In that, in that climate, it, it is, it is uh, I think the courts have been willing to assume the regularity of governmental operations. Government officials will be trained, but in any event, they are subject to direct political accountability. When a function is being performed by a private contractor, the government can't step in and collect... You say politi political accountability. You, you mean the electorate, I suppose. And the, the electorate and, pub and, and public, public attention, public scrutiny on the, on the acts of, of, of public officials. That's not to say that the... That well, the does that, do you think there would be less, say, media attention on a prison riot if, the, if prison officials and the workers were contract prisoners than if they were government employees? No, there wouldn't, there wouldn't be less media attention, but I believe that it may be that the public would hold the uh, public warden or correctional superintendent more directly responsible for what happened, and perhaps properly so. Why on earth would that be? be because in, it, the, 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 direct, the direct supervision of the, of the guards on a day-to-day on a, on a -day basis, anyway, is not, is not the responsibility of the, of the head of the correctional department. The government has turned over, uh, as a package, the entire operation of, of the prison. And there are a series of financial and other incentives for the contractor to both protect the security of the prison and protect private rights. That includes not just what happens in individual guard decisions, but the broader questions. The contractor has to decide the training, the security measures, the, the way facilities are designed, the programs. All you of better be very careful in picking the contractor. It seems to me you can get just as mad as the, at, the, at the state governmental corrections director for for being very negligent in his selection of contractors, as you can get mad at him for being negligent in his supervision but of people who aren't. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that there's, that, there's no, that there's no responsibility, but we do believe that, that it's attenuated and, and that, in fact, there's a, there's a pretty important break in the chain of control. The very act of contracting over the operation of an entire institution, we're not talking about individual doctors who may be integrated into what's otherwise a governmental institution, but 
turning over the operation of an entire institution to, to a private corporation, uh, the, the model then would be that that private corporation, using, using whatever it believes would, would best promote the overall performance of the contract, to use its creativity, to use its financial resources in a way that will both uh, win the contract the next time around and also to guard against constitutional rights. In the, in the government, in the government, I think this court has been willing to assume that the that the accountability and, and the direct responsibility of the Constitution will help to de- deter constitutional violations. I think that there's less structural basis. I'm not saying necessarily empirical, but structural basis uh, for concluding that that uh, the same um, assumption should not be applied uh, in in the case of private contractors. But we do urge this court not to uh, announce a rule um, that would. Uh, say that uh, immunity is not available in any case of private actors, but only in the government contractor uh, situation. Thank you, Mr. Needler. Mr. Ray, you have six minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. I promise you I won't use that. In response to the government, I, I, I really submit that their position seems to be a bit elitist, that doctors, counselors, those professions that you're going to have difficulty in, in bringing into the contracting service should have immunity, qualified immunity, but a mere prison guard where the rubber meets the road, somehow they don't want qualified immunity. And I would submit that... Mr. Ray, it wasn't quite that way because they said the person who is helping you out in the U.S. Marshal Service, they have to get temporary people in the Marshal Service. I don't think they were talking about elite people in that regard. Well, again, I would submit that if we're going to have qualified immunity for these types of people, the people who utilize the most discretion on a day-to-day basis and need it the most are correctional officials. Let me ask you this. It's probably not a very great point because nobody's made it on the other side, but this did occur to me. They mostly argued this incentive thing, which we've been through. But if you go back into the history of these cases, I once thought that the reason this qualified immunity developed at all was the courts are focusing on a particular person who may not have insurance. He's a defendant. And they're saying this poor person... You know, he's trying to do his job. Here his life is ruined. He's stuck with a $100,000 verdict. We'll hurt the plaintiffs a little bit in order to help him out a little bit. Now, if that is how this thing developed, and certainly Learned Hand probably had something like that in mind, I think, in Gregoire versus Biddle, all right? Then it is a different world, isn't it, where people have insurance? No question And if we're going into this different world when people have insurance, like the private companies, all must under contract then that defendant is somewhat less in need of that protection. And that, though no one's made this, so I, I mean, maybe there's some obvious answer to this, but, but the, the, if they don't need the protection because we're now in a new world, uh, does that sort of hurt the whole idea of qualified immunity, at least as applied to a field where they have to have insurance? In the case that was argued yesterday, it, it was quite apparent that insurance played a great role in that particular case. The county had insurance, whether or not it was enough, so governments indemnify their employees just as private concerns do. And I don't believe that this court has ever let that particular issue decide whether qualified immunity would pass on to a certain governmental official. And again, since Harlow, the focus I would submit has been upon what the public interest is in having qualified immunity conferred on this particular governmental official who utilizes discretion on a daily basis. Uh, we do indemnify our guards, but eventually that cost is going to be passed on to the state of Tennessee and eventually passed on to the taxpayers of the state of Tennessee. So I would submit that the ultimate goal is to serve the taxpayers of the state of Tennessee and therefore 
qualified immunity shouldn't turn on whether or not there's indemnification of our employees. Well, I don't know if that's the ultimate goal. The statute is, was enacted to protect the constitutional rights of people from violations by state officials. And in your hypothesis, you've got a constitutional violation here, but it should go unredressed because of the qualified immunity doctrine. No, Mr. Justice Davis, that's not our hypothesis at all. I, you I'm don't saying, need the defense unless there's a constitutional violation. Well, if our actions were objectively reasonable under the standard established by this court, then qualified immunity attaches the to us. Qualified immunity attaches even though there was a constitutional violation. But again, as I understand it, Mr. Richardson and Mr. Walker did not know or, or should not have known about their constitutional deprivation of, of, of Mr. McKnight's rights in order for them to have the benefit. Uh, but one thing I do want to point out, one of the reasons... I, I thought you said that was just down the road when, when we opened this discussion. That's, that's correct, Justice Ginsburg. That, that question has not been decided by the District Court, the Sixth Circuit, and we never got that far. But in response to one of Mr. Justice Breyer's questions earlier, one of the specific reasons that we can lose this contract is to violate the constitutional rights of the inmates that we have in our keep. And, and that is quite evident to all our employees. And if we want to succeed and, and retain this contract, then we have to uh, proceed down a, a straight and narrow path that, that uh, belies the parade of horribles that, that the respondent and Mekai have, have raised. And, and contract says that in so many words? Don't, don't violate the constitutional rights of any prisoners? Or just, it says that. that? That's one of the provisions, Your Honor. So, so that you could, uh, you could be declared in violation of your contract during its, its term. It's not a mere problem of renewal. That's correct. Uh, written notice given for a number of reasons, constitutional deprivations being one of them, Mr. Justice Sir. Is that clause subject to qualified immunity defense? <laughs> you may end up having a defense against the tort suit, but you lose the contract because you violated the constitutional rights, qualified immunity or not. That's a real box you're in. I'm assuming uh, I've been known to put myself in such a box at 2, 2 a.m. in the morning when I come in, Mr. Justice Scalia. But, uh, uh, thank you, Mr. Ray. The case is submitted.